Hello everyone, welcome to episode 11 of the Haunted Visions podcast. We are dedicated to stories of the paranormal, spine-chilling history, and adventures into the darkness of the unknown. So grab a flashlight, lock your doors, curl up under your blankets, and prepare to be scared. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Haunted Visions. My name's Brandy, and with me, as always, is Rachel. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And we are going to, first of all, I want to wish everybody, for us here right now, it's uh, the day before Thanksgiving, so I want to make sure I wish everybody a happy holiday. Happy Turkey Day, y'all. And a happy and safe Black Friday to us all. Don't get trampled in the stores. It's not worth it, people. It's not worth your lives. It's totally worth it. Throw an elbow in an old lady, people back off. <laughs> so um, today we're going to go ahead and just jump right into it. Today we're going to talk about um, the Los, Fel- Los Feliz murder mansion. Um, and this is a little bit different um, than what we usually do. Uh, I'm going to go over um, just kind of the background of this place. And and then, um, you know, Rachel's going to go into some of the haunted things, but we get we dive a little more into the background of this mansion than probably we normally would. Um, so let me go ahead and we'll get started here. Los Feliz is an exclusive hillside neighborhood in the central region of Los Angeles, California, abutting Hollywood and encompassing part of the Santa Monica Mountains. The area north of Los Feliz Boulevard below, below Griffith Park is commonly referred to as the Los Feliz Hills. The Los Feliz Hills contain multi-million dollar homes and have been known for the large share of their inhabitants being involved in creative pursuits. They're actors, musicians, producers. Fancy people. They are fancy people. With a mean household income of $196,585, the hills are one of the wealthiest areas of Los Angeles. The neighborhood is also home to the infamous Los Feliz murder mansion. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. It's a murder mystery that has puzzled the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles since 1959. The criminal case part was solved quickly enough. Homicide investigators found that Dr. Harold Pearlson bludgeoned his wife to death with a ball-peen hammer, savagely beat their 18-year-old daughter, and then fatally poisoned himself by gulping a glass of acid. What? What an awful way to go. Why? Okay. Not, obviously that's kind of messed up that he would do that to his own family, but why would you want to drink a glass of acid? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that part of it, but I guess he wasn't in his right mind if he did any of that stuff. Clearly. (laughs) Authorities removed two other children from the sprawling hillside estate that overlooks downtown Los Angeles, locked the front door to the 5,050 square foot mansion and left. Sixty years later, the murder mansion remains empty. The estate's terraced grounds are pockmarked by gopher holes and overgrown with grass that sprouted after recent rains, growth that neighbors know will turn brown when summer returns. A pond is partially filled with rainwater. Weeds poke through the cracks in a curving asphalt driveway. On the outside, the mansion itself appears to be slowly decaying. Through grimy, cracked windows, one can see dust-covered furniture, including a 1950s-style television set, seemingly frozen in time, and what appears to be gaily wrapped Christmas gifts set on a table. And in the hills of this wealthy neighborhood, the questions linger. Why has the current owner kept the home as it was on December 6, 1959? 
To answer this question, we need to know more about the previous owner, Harold Pearlson, and what happened in this beautiful mansion nearly 60 years ago. So, Harold was born on February 1st, 1909 in New York. His father, Henry, was a Polish printer's clerk. His mother, Molly, was Russian, and they had fled Eastern Europe to escape imperial repression, land shortages, and chronic unemployment. The Pearlsons were a part of a flood of 13.5 million immigrants that washed up in the States, many of them blue-collar Poles, Italians, and Slavs, eager to scrap for their, place of the, their piece of the American dream. The Pearlsons settled on Pitkin Avenue in Queens, and Harold grew up the eldest of four children. It was a tale of rags to riches, as the second generation moved out of the tenements and sweatshops to a leafy middle-class suburb and professional office suites, making rapid growth upwards progress and achieving success with remarkable ease and speed. Young Harold was sent to medical school, where he revealed a quick mind and an entrepreneurial spirit. Yet New York could be hard to crack for the son of immigrants, so Harold packed his bags for the sunshine of Southern California, where, is wish, where I wish I was right now because it's cold here. Yes. He landed a job in an Inglewood physician's office, published several papers in the fields of neurology, and later became a cardiology professor at the USC School of Medicine. Success and riches came in abundance, and his family life thrived. Dr. Pearlson excuse me, married Lillian Silver, another second-generation immigrant from Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, also cold. <laughs> they had three children, Judy, Debbie, and Joel, and looked for a dream family home in the hills of Los Angeles. They thought they'd found it in the Los Feliz neighborhood at a price of $60,000, half a million dollars in today's money. For the son of a Polish clerk, it was extraordinary. <whistles> Built in Spanish Revival style, this handsome home at 2475 Glendower Place was originally designed in 1925 for Harry F. Schumacher, by architect Harry E. Wiener. <laughs> Sorry, I sound so immature right now. I'm I know, sorry. it's okay. In 1931, Schumacher invited 20-year-old Donald Beaton to stay at his new home. On December 6, 1931, Beaton died in his bed of, of a mysterious infection after playing tennis. That doesn't sound shady at all. No, right. Several months later, in the fall of 1932, uh, Harry died of a long, long illness, and the house was sold on December 6th, 1932. Lots happens on December 6th. Mm -hmm. Next, Frederick Zelnick moved in. Zelnick, an influential producer-director of German silent cinema, was forced to flee Germany for London after Hitler rose to power in 1933. He moved to Los Angeles, where he continued to produce movies until his death in 1950. When Harold Pearlson acquired the home in the 1950s, it was described as a delightful 12-room home with terraced lawns, artistic gardens, and a magnificent view. A spacious, tiled entrance hall and stairway led to a charming living room, a glass conservatory, dining room, den, breakfast room, and kitchen. Upstairs, the second floor had four master bedrooms and three baths, while the third floor boasted a bar and a ballroom because that's what every house should have. If I had a ballroom, I would totally um, pull a Tom Cruise move and get long socks 
and sunglasses and a long shirt and just like slide around by myself. Dude, I would dance it out every day. Yeah. I would dance it out every day. I would zoom the shit out of that. I would have I would have (laughs) no bad days because I would totally dance it out up there. Oh, yeah. After I was half in the bag from the bar. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. There were staff quarters, too, though the Pearlson's only help was a teenage babysitter who was also a neighbor. Uh, Harold was an injection specialist. On December 30th, 1938, he had filed a patent for a medical device of his own invention. Uh, The attachment to a hypodermic syringe was designed to inject drugs directly from a sealed glass capsule, reducing the danger of contamination and spillage. After developing the device for a decade, in 1949, he entered into a verbal agreement with a gentleman called Edward Shustak, a man he hoped would turn the general idea of his product into a medical hit. Pearlson and Shustak agreed to split the profits. Harold and Lillian sunk $24,496 into the project. 7000 of it came from Lillian's own savings. According to court documents, Shustak spent 11 more years, what is wrong with this guy, developing the magic <laughs> syringe for sale, but he had no intention of giving the doctor any of the money. In a complaint filed on July 21st, 1952, Pearlson claimed that Shustak, using a fake name, spirited away his rights to the device. A shady corporation masked the deception of fraud. The court heard and the doctor was double-crossed. Furious, Pearlson sued, demanding compensation of $100,000. So that would be nearly a million dollars in today's money. But the case was long and drawn out. After two years of expensive legal posturing, the court awarded Pearlson just $23,956. It's not known if the syringe ever came to market. He didn't even get his money back. Right. He didn't even get it all back. That's awful. He got screwed on that deal. Uh, Three years later, worse luck arrived for the Pearlson family. On November 3rd, 1957, Judy was driving her siblings in in her father's 52 Oldsmobile. As she crossed the intersection of Vermont and Los Feliz Boulevards, she collided with another car. Judy suffered hand and knee injuries, concussions, and severe shock. Young Joel had a head injury and severe shock to the nervous system. Whatever that means. (laughs) Deborah's cheek was sliced open. The other driver, Eleanor Keller, claimed that Judy, then 16, drove through a red light without looking. But Dr. Pearlson told the Keller took the Keller family to court, claiming Eleanor's carelessness and negligence caused the crash. He demanded 20000 in damages for each daughter and a further 10000 for his son. He won. Why isn't his son as worth as much as his daughter's? It's kind I of I don't understand that. He won, but the court uh, awarded just a fraction of what he sought, only enough to cover medical bills. It was just another bittersweet victory in the courts and another blow to the family's finances. Yearbooks from Barrister High School in 1958 show the Pearlson's oldest daughter, Judy, was popular, a member of the Girls' League, and secretary of the student body. Outside of school, Judy was an usherette at the Huntington Hartford Theater on Hollywood and Vine, a glitzy mid-century auditorium fashioned with white Vermont marble and gold fittings. Friends recall seeing towers of shoeboxes in the home as a result of Judy's love for shopping. So, 
tell us a little more, Rachel. Well, she was driving a sports car just before the killings, the newspaper said, and it was suggesting that Perelson's family um, was reversing their fortunes and had not actually been affected by her spending. But Judy's father was changing. The good doctor was no longer driven by the ambition to succeed, to invent, to heal, to help others. His reading became darker. That summer of 59, he turned to melancholy books. So much has been speculated about the doctor's violent attack, yet so little facts are known about the deaths themselves. The Los Angeles coroner's office had the answers, but they were hidden away in the archives. The autopsy reports make for an unpleasant reading and included grim diagrams of the family's injuries. It was nearly five o'clock when the sun dipped behind the mountains. Guess what, Brandy? On December 6th, 1959, that date is cursed. No one do anything on December 6th. Don't go out. Just stay home. Make sure your family's not murderous before you stay home. Or, you know, I don't know if you should stay home on December 6th. (laughs) (laughs) Something's going on there. So December in Los Angeles is known for its bad weather. Its days are warm and bright, followed by deceptively freezing cold nights. On evenings like this, residents enjoy cocktail hour wearing tennis sweaters. So in my opinion, that's not very that's Christmassy. Not bad weather. I guess it's not bad, but maybe for them they're like, oh, another 70 degree day. What are we to it's, do? It's so chilly. Oh, no. So Lillian had eaten a dinner of green beans before retiring to bed. She Why is slept- that dinner? That's a side dish. What is old girl eating a side dish for? (laughs) I don't know. I would eat way more than that. I will eat that whole Thanksgiving turkey by myself and then have some side dish of green beans. Just saying. So she slept soundly in her nightdress, her head resting on the pillow in the marital bed on the second floor of the house. By midnight, the temperature had dropped into the 40s. There was not a sound on Glendower Place at 4.30 a.m. No, there is not. When Harold stood over her bed with a ball peen hammer in his hand. You know what's really messed up? She didn't even have a chance to scream. He struck her so hard that the gaping inch wide hole in the back of her head turned the pillow the color of scarlet. Seeing what he had done, Harold turned and walked out of the bedroom. He opened the door to the ensuite bathroom and passed through another door that led to his eldest daughter Judy's bedroom where her name was marked on a sticker on the light switch. He struck her, too, without warning, over the head with the same hammer. But Judy caught just a glancing blow and let out a scream. He, it was a scream so otherworldly that neighbors on Glendower Place sat bolt right up in their beds. Lay still, Harold told Judy. Keep quiet. But yes. Judy did not. Imagine she didn't do that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, yeah. Father. If May I could, have another strike to the head? If you could just be quiet and be still for a second while I get this done, that'd be great. Obviously, he lost his damn mind because that's just jacked up. Anyway, um, so neighbor Sherry Lewis can still remember the screams. She had a young friend, Shelly, visiting for a sleepover. Shelly panicked. At first, it sounded like a wild animal screaming, Lewis says, and then she could clearly hear the voice she knew to be Judy's. Don't kill me. Inside her bedroom, Judy somehow escaped her father, whose hands were covered in blood, as was his shoulder. Judy ran into her parents' bedroom. There she saw the full horror of her father's work. Judy sprinted down the hallway and found the spiral staircase. She ran out the front door, taking deep breaths of cold night air. The smiling gargoyle in the fountain watched on as she flew down the concrete steps. That gave me cold chills. (laughs) She banged desperately on the door of the Lewis house. Getting no answer, 
She began hammering on the French windows next to the front door, smearing, smearing the windows with blood. Upstairs, Sherry and Shelley were frozen in fear. They are not good in a crisis situation. No. Judy tried another neighbor, Marshall Ross, who finally opened his door, and together they called the police. Back at the Pearlson house, the two younger children had woken up to the sound of the sisters' screams. Go back to bed. This is a nightmare, Harold told 11-year-old Debbie. Then he strode away, dripping blood on the floor. Meanwhile, Marshall Ross was climbing the steps to the Pearlson house. He found Debbie and 13-year-old Joel waiting on the first floor. Then he climbed the stairs and came face to face with the doctor. Go on home, Harold told him, according to the coroner's report. Don't bother me. Yeah. I just murdered my wife and tried to, you know, kill my daughter, but don't bother me. Ross watched the doctor walk into the bathroom. Harold found the drawers where he kept his medicines and pulled them open. Blood smeared everywhere. He pulled out bottles and boxes of pills, opened the lids. He tore apart two capsules of nebutal, nebutal. A, a barbiturate. Yeah. Have any experience with that? I, I'm not answering that question. Played the fifth. <laughs> and turned on the top. He turned on the taps, mixing the yellow powder with water and the wash basin. Nebudol is known as death in a bottle, a favorite of suicide seekers hoping for a quick death. It even killed Judy Garland. Apparently that's what she took to Apparently. aid in her suicide. And I guess it's been stated that it tastes bitter. Yeah. I hope no one ever finds out. I hope that stuff gets wiped off the planet and no one ever feels the need to take their own life with that stuff. But to be certain of his fate, the doctor then swallowed 31 small white pills believed to be codeine or a powerful tranquilizer. Then he turned back into the bedroom. The last Marshall Ross saw, the doctor laid down on the bed and waited for the drugs to work. It took 15 minutes for the police cars to climb the, the, the hill from the Hollywood station. At 5.15 a.m., LAPD detectives Anderson and Pozo dashed up the concrete stairs. I just want to point out that sounds like a really good LAPD name. Yeah, like detective series. Right. Kind of like. Anderson and Pozo. Yeah. Well, anyway. For, I don't know why it would take 10 minutes for them to, I mean, that's, or 15 minutes. Why, why, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it would be a really bad cop show. <laughs> flip, flip the lights on and hit the gas, Margaret. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So by the time they found the doctor, he was on the floor. His head lay on a pillow covered in his daughter's blood, the hammer in his hand. He was only just breathing and would be dead before the ambulance arrived. An hour later. Sure. More yeah. like five hours later, whatever. Yeah. The police gathered the rest of the pills and laid them on the dresser in his room. They discovered on a nightstand next to Pearlson's bed a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy. It was opened to Canto One, which stated, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. When coroners inspected Lillian's body, they found the whites of her eyes to be blood red. She had died of asphyxiation, drowned in her own blood. Now that is a jacked up way to go. That is a jacked up way to go. And let me also state that nowhere in that sentence from Canto 1 does it say you should kill your family. Go ahead. No. It just says, you know, the pathway had been lost. Obviously, this man had lost his pathway, but that didn't mean you have to kill your whole family. Well, I just, I don't understand. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, obviously, he was a little... Um, insane in the membrane. So no one knows exactly what prompted Mr. Per or Dr. Pearlson to commit those atrocities 60 years ago. Some have speculated financial woes, while others have dug up old unconfirmed rumors of Dr. Pearlson having been secretly hospitalized. Hmm. So I wonder, you know, maybe that could have potentially had something to do with it. 
He had been hospitalized with heart problems twice leading up to the murders, and it is believed, though, that the heart problems were a cover story and that he had actually been hospitalized for at least two suicide attempts. It has been speculated that due to his deteriorating mental state, Harold feared that his wife was going to try and have him permanently committed to an insane asylum. So, okay, well, this kind of makes, it's starting to come to light now. Mm-hmm. Although no one is really sure why Harold Perelson killed his wife and attacked his daughter before killing himself, what remains an even larger mystery is why the current owner has left the scene of the crime almost exactly as it was in 1959. A year after the murders in 1960, the mansion was sold to a probate auction to a Lincoln Heights couple, Emily and Julian Enriquez. Um, So neighbors remember that the pair visited the house and brought property there to store but didn't move in. The place remains as it was in 1959. In the living room is a long abandoned Christmas tree and furnishings from the 1950s. On a coffee table, an issue of Life magazine dated November 1959. A half-eaten can of SpaghettiOs can be seen sitting on the kitchen table. And I just want to point out, I don't care if this makes me sound like an overgrown child. I love SpaghettiOs. I can't help myself. I know. My husband thinks I'm a weirdo, but, you know, whatever. The best people are weird. I don't believe in pasta in a can. Go ahead. Pasta in a can. (laughs) So, um, in time, the place gradually started to fall into disrepair. Antique light fixtures dating from the 1920s disappeared from the outside. Pillagers. Uh, I would pillage those, just saying. 1920s, I'm all about that. Um, Over the years, neighbors say they have helped maintain the property by painting a street-side garage and tidying up the front yard. They placed a chain across the driveway that leads to the rear of the mansion, giving each nearby resident a key to its lock. There has been numerous reports of people hearing children's screams coming from the house. When police arrive to check it out, they find the house to be dark and quiet. Over the years, there have been reports of lights flickering off and on in the house, even though there's no electricity in it. And in 1974, several neighbors reported seeing a child screaming and covered with blood in the front window, again when police checked it out and found the house empty. So I'm wondering if his other two kids obviously were okay and his his daughter Judy survived. It makes you wonder what they say about hauntings, about how even though they weren't dead, just the energy and just the trauma that happened in that space it's like a repetitive thing you know it's like repetitive energy which is really sad there have been numerous reports of the sound of late night hammering coming from the house but there is no logical explanation as to why and several years ago the city required current owner rudy enriquez to replace stucco that had been peeling from the sides of the house and front walkway walls and repaint the place so he inherited the mansion when his mother had died in 1994 and I bet, I would bet that he's probably doesn't want anything to do with that house if they're just letting it sit there and rot and fall apart. They might as well just knock the dang thing down and let someone build a house there. Well. Then you wonder if they'll have ghost problems. Right. So since then, he has been approached many times by potential buyers, and he has steadfastly refused to sell. But at the time, he told reporters he hadn't decided what he wants to do with the property. And it has been reported that Rudy passed away in 2015. And in March 2016, the house was put on the market for 2.75 mil. And to date, it remains on the market. Because nobody wants to buy that crap. And so it seems a little overpriced. 
Because uh, you got to go in there and clean all that out and that SpaghettiO stench. And, well, not I only mean, that, but then you got to think about the reno budget. I'm addicted to HGTV and all the, the renovation shows. And I yeah. tell myself if I ever won the lottery, that's what I would do is buy like this little rundown house and fix it up. Yeah, but this is a big old rundown house. <laughs> and I, and I would want to deal with that. You got to get an old priest and a young priest. <laughs> And yeah, and, and you got to sage the shit out of the house. You got to sage it. You got to get a Jewish guy in there. I mean, you got it. You got a lot you need to do. You there. have to read literally every beat piece of scripture in every language, probably. Yeah. To exercise the demons. Demons. Anyway, so that's our story. And um, I've always been kind of fascinated with that place. I've heard I've heard about it on several other um, TV shows and things of that nature. And I really want to check it out. I don't know that I'd go inside, but... Well, I don't think you can get inside, but there's just a chain across the driveway. I bet you could peek through a window. Probably. I wonder. It makes you really wonder how many tourists go there every single day. Like, if the neighbors are like, oh, there's another car again. It just yeah. makes you wonder if they're annoyed. You know, at this point, though, it's probably just like, eh, whatever. They're used to it. Yeah. this has gone on for generations now. Right. It's like, I don't know. Anyway... So um, before we start on our ghastly ghost section, I wanted to let you guys know, I wanted to thank everybody that's rated and reviewed us. Um, yes, thank you. Um, we have 31 reviews on iTunes. We are sitting at four and a half out of five stars, which I think is pretty darn good considering we're still kind of in our podcast infancy. Yes. But um, I hope that you guys can appreciate that like a fine wine, we, will, we should get better over time. Yeah. So um, we hope that we keep you guys entertained. We love you guys and thank you for your support. Um, also wanted to give a shout out um, to the people that do support us on Patreon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. Every little bit helps. Um, Brandy and I, it takes a lot to podcast and um, we really appreciate any donation that you make. So yes, we do. So um, Brandy, where can they support us on Patreon if they want to? Uh, go to patreon.com backslash haunted visions. You can give a little or a lot or just a little, 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 little bit, but every little bit helps. Mm -hmm. um, but you can go there and, and give a donation. I also want to give a shout out. Um, we haven't done a podcast since the since this started, but um, we have a new staff member. Her name's Caroline. Uh, she's not Sweet being paid. We'll Caroline. call her. We'll call her an intern because uh, I feed her. <laughs> uh, but she is wonderful and she is actually doing our um, Instagram page which is what oh it's Haunted Visions yeah yeah okay so find us find us on Instagram on Haunted Visions yep Instagram and uh, Twitter which I think is at Haunted Visions podcast it's at Haunted Visions yep is it podcast at Haunted Visions podcast or at Haunted Visions Keep talking. You're I'll look in my email and I'll tell you. You're <laughs> killing me, Smalls. So, but so you, so you go do that. And, uh, but, but Caroline does a wonderful job for us, and I, we really appreciate what she does uh, every day. So, anything. So, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at Visions Haunted. Ah, see. Because I, I guess some jack wagon took at Haunted Visions. So yeah. whatever, jack Visions Haunted, tomato, tomato. Yeah. Potato, patata. At Visions Haunted. <laughs> and they, there she posts a lot of... Um, really cool stuff. Yeah, she posts a lot of little factoids and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Rachel, you got our creepy story for the day? Yes, I do. And also, if you guys have creepy stories and you want to have um, 
your name and story read on this awesome podcast. To be heard by tens of people. <laughs> tens of people. I think we've got like maybe a hundred. M- maybe. That's all right. They That's okay. They're, they famous. are dedicated. Yes. If you want to be um, special, you can send us your stories to hauntedvisionspodcast at gmail.com. And um, we'll get back to you. Usually I respond within like 24 hours or so. Um, or you can even message us at our page on Facebook, just our regular page. You can go and like it. Um, the more likes, the better. And we post our podcast links to there. Or you could join our private Facebook group page and post your stories there. Interact with a lot of other fun, creepy, spooky folks like us. Um, we'd love to have you. So this story comes from Tyra Jenkins, and she is on our Haunted uh, Visions uh, closed group page and she's a really awesome person and this Tyra's story pretty cool she's she's the bomb so there's a lot of um, emotional elements to this story so if you if you need to grab a, a tissue I understand because this actually made me tear up a little bit she's pretty personal so here it goes by all accounts I consider myself an educated and rational person I'm very much the I don't believe it unless I see it type of person I also consider myself a religious person, not not devout by any means, but I do consider myself a person of faith. Ever since I was a little girl, I have felt and sensed things. My earliest experience was around six years old when I saw a man walking through my house. But one experience that changed, that changed me forever, wasn't about a ghost. It was about angels. And I write that even though I'm not sure, I can recount every detail of what happened, but... What really happened, I'm not sure. Even to this day, I can't tell the story without crying because it's very emotional. I mentioned on another group page that I've had two liver transplants. I almost didn't get my second one. I was very ill, and at this point, the doctors were trying to get me me stabilized so that they could transfer me um, to another transplant center. I had always been in the hospital for about, I was in the hospital for about five weeks and in and out of a coma three times, and all my organs were failing. The doctors actually stopped talking to me and started talking to my mother in hushed tones. My mother never left my side. She stayed in the room and slept on a cot next to me the entire time. I knew I was dying, and I was okay with it. It was difficult, and it was a difficult decision, but it just sort of happened that at 30, I made peace with my life and didn't want to suffer anymore. I knew medicine wasn't keeping me alive. It was my my mother's stubbornness. I needed my mother to leave. I didn't want her last vision of me to be dead in a hospital bed, and I couldn't do that to her. I asked her to go out, go to my apartment, but she refused, and it was really pissing me off. One day out of the blue, my mom asked me if I wanted to go outside, because there was a garden in the hospital that my mom would sneak off to, and she said that she wanted to show me. After a struggle, we finally made it down there. Me in a wheelchair, with um, every machine known to man attached to me, and we just sat, and we didn't talk. My mom got a phone call, so she walked away for privacy, and that's when it happened. I started to hear whispers. It was odd because no one was there, but I could clearly hear my mom, or see my mom, and it wasn't her. And in that moment, all sounds stopped, and all I heard were whispers all around me. Surrounding me at the same time this was happening, I started to feel peaceful and happy, and it felt like this went on for hours. But when I came to... My mother was off the phone and things were back to normal. Years later, I asked my mom, and she says she was on the phone for no more than 15 minutes. The next day, I started improving, 
and we didn't know what to think. Within a week, I was discharged and on my way to the transplant center. Now rational Tyra can explain this all away as a drug-induced hallucination. But what I can't rationalize was while waiting for my mom to get to the car, this woman sat next to me. I thought she was waiting for a ride because nothing seemed unusual about her. But all of a sudden, she turns to me and says, We're happy you're doing better, Tyra. No matter what you thought, it wasn't your time to go. And just like that, she was gone. I got better, and the transplant and, and the transplant happened, and I am alive to tell this story. Nothing like that has ever happened to me again. But I wonder, do we attract things like that? Are some people more receptive to it? Or maybe I was truly at a crossroads in my life, and I needed angelic intervention. That's really cool right that that happened that's very very cool thank you so much Tyra for sharing that I know that was very personal for you so I appreciate we appreciate you sharing that with us absolutely so Miss Rachel is there anything else that you would like to say before we sign off for the long weekend um sorry it took us a little bit longer to get an episode out to you guys i know i've gotten some emails from people asking where the show is and everything's fine we're still going to be on our bi-weekly schedule it took a little bit longer unfortunately because some th- personal things came up in our lives and we weren't able to record um but um so you won't get an episode from us next week but the following week get ready yeah perfect <laughs> So. Brandy's Brandy's little boy is recording with us, by the way. If you can hear him in the background, he's uh. adorable. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Stay spooky. <laughs>